Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God. And we've uh, been jumping around a little bit in the Bible. We've done uh, Deuteronomy uh, 7 and a few other uh, chapters we looked at. And uh, then last week, we looked at Genesis 11. And uh, I went over that, uh, the audio for that, which we'll release on our network. If you join the network at hisholychurch.org or preparingyou.com. And we share an awful lot of information uh, that should be just common knowledge amongst Christians, but is just seemingly skipped over by modern Christianity. Uh, because certain doctrines have slipped into the Christian community. What we, in the most general sense, they use this term, Christian community. Community used to be that you shared a common communion, and that's what made you a community. Uh, and by communion, we mean your daily bread, you know, how you took care of the needy of society. That's what religion was. Religion was how you took care of the needy of your society, how you performed your duties, all your known duties to God and your fellow man, whatever God has been saying for generation upon generation for thousands of years what people imagine God has been telling them. You know, if you if you go to the Teutons, it was very important that you be courageous in the defense of your neighbor. That was a virtue. That was something that the gods or God uh, of uh, creation uh, instilled in the Teutons is that they were to come to the defense of their family and the, the defense of their neighbor. And they had to do this in order to survive because they had no emperors, no kings. They At one point, there was a fellow, Herman the German, we write about in Thy Kingdom Comes, which is free online if you join the network. Somebody will show you where you can get that, a copy of that. But the... Uh, uh, he had a couple of different names because he was he was an actually an exchange student from the Teuton people, and he was actually educated in Rome. So he knew Roman uh, system, the language, the the way in which the government was organized, and uh, he uh, ended up joining forces with his own people and defeating the Roman army when it was coming up to kind of assert its. Uh, it's uh, Pax Romana on the Teutons. And exactly why they thought they needed to do that is difficult to say. There had been a number of allies uh, amongst the Teutons. Uh, Caesar himself had uh, hired uh, uh, the Germanic people uh, as a part of his military uh, offensive to uh, against the Gauls. Uh, he went up to the Gauls. Wene Weedy Weechi is what he said. I came, I saw, I conquered. And uh, why did he even go up there to the Gauls to begin with? Well, there were some Gauls that were asking for aid from Rome, uh, applying to Rome for assistance. 
to protect them from foreign invasion or invasion of others. You know, kind of like what's going on in uh, in uh, Europe today with uh, your battle with the the Russians and uh, the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians want aid. We've actually, the United States, I should say, the United States has given uh, aid in the amount of, or exceeding that of the entire military budget of Russia. You know, Russia has a military budget. Well, Biden, who is the acting president of the United States, literally has sent more money to the Ukraine than the entire military budget of Russia. (laughs) That's the the scale of what you're dealing with. And, of course, that's why Caesar went to Gaul, was to aid certain people in Gaul to protect them from, we can't allow foreign invasion to come over into Gaul. And... uh, and assert the rights of individuals and communities in Gaul. And, of course, they they went up there with supposedly that intent, but what actually took place was over a million Gauls were subjugated and sold into slavery or just out and out murdered by the Roman army. And, you know, part of this, some of the Gauls were trying to avoid a conflict with Rome, uh, and doing everything they could do that. We've talked about that before. But the reality is is that they were just caught up in this military operation. And like I said, at that particular time, some of the decisive battles with Caesar and and the Gauls was won because Caesar was hiring Teutons, Germans, to come over there and fight this battle with the Gauls. And they were a deciding factor in uh, at least one of the major battles with the Gauls that brought about the defeat of the people and then systematic subjugation of large sections of Gaul where, you know, the the resistance was killed off and the women were sold into slavery or the men were sold into slavery all, all over the world. Uh, not just in Rome, but they shipped them off to North Africa, to wherever, wherever they could get the best price. And uh, that that system was around for a long time, uh, both there, you could go all over the world and you could find people that were constantly being captured and sold into slavery. You go back to the days of Abraham, uh, Lot and his family were captured by armies trudging around, invading certain city-states, and they would not only uh, invade that city-state and plunder it of all of its gold and silver and valuables, uh, but they would also capture people that they would turn into slaves. Because if you didn't have some sort of military presence to protect you, the idea of other people coming in and invading and destroying your community, your city, your your uh, livelihood, and taking you away into slavery was a very real possibility that swept across different parts of the world at different times in history. So, governments are instituted to prevent that, 
to prevent the enslavement of the people. Unfortunately, some designs of government uh, actually includes the enslavement of people. And, which is why we have phrases in Proverbs like, the slothful shall be under tribute. If you're under tribute, where you have to give a portion of your labor to a government in order to maintain freedom, you know, not go to jail or whatever, you're back in the bondage of Egypt. Because that's what the bondage of Egypt was, is that a portion of your labor belonged to the government. And you had to give one-fifth of your labor to the government every year. One-fifth of the labor in a given year went to the government of Pharaoh. That was the bondage of Egypt. And your personal wealth was uh, not entirely available to you. Like the gold was all in the hands of the government. People didn't own gold. Like in Sparta. It was against the law to own gold in Sparta. Even Hitler said that gold in the hands of the people is the enemy of the state. Because if you're allowed to keep your wealth and you're allowed to keep all of your labor, it's very hard for a dictator to exercise authority over you. So they they have to create a system where a portion of your labor doesn't belong to you and uh, what you produce with your labor doesn't belong to you. And one of the great ways of doing this or implementing this is socialism, which is... Absolutely amazing because the way socialism is presented to people, it's you're told that it's a political system that allows control of the means of production by the collective. Of course, the collective can't make a decision about every bit of the means of production and what you produce. So, what it is, is that you elect somebody who has that power. And that's one form of government. The church is defined, even in the law dictionaries today, and has been for decades and decades, maybe over a century now, uh, the word church is defined as one form of government. And that form of government of the church, established by Jesus Christ at least, and we can see this from the biblical text, doesn't allow you to have men who exercise authority one over the other. In other words, take away a portion of your labor. That was forbidden by Christ. That that would be considered a covetous practice. And Peter told you that that would make you merchandise and curse your children. Uh, that's just basic, fundamental, biblical information. It's right there. But for some reason, people just cannot see it. They cannot see that desiring benefits at the expense of your neighbor is a covetous practice. That is against the teachings of Jesus Christ. Against the teachings of Moses. Who, who freed people from a system where a portion of their labor belonged to government. That was called the bondage of Egypt. And they were never to go back there again. But people just can't quite see it. Very bright, intelligent people, biblical scholars, just just look at the teachings that we see coming right out of the mouth of Christ. And they just can't see it. They, they think, no, it's okay 
to desire benefits at the expense of my neighbor at the hands of men who exercise authority. They can't see it. Well, why can't they see it? Why, why don't they realize the contradiction, the discrepancy, the, the, uh, hypocrisy of accepting the idea that it's okay to take from my neighbor as long as I do it through the form of government I have created for myself or my parents created for us. And yet think that we're actually still following Christ. Because that is not what Christ said to do. It's actually the opposite of what he said to do. So, since we, like I said, I went over the audio, most of the audio uh, that uh, we made last week concerning Genesis 11. And uh, while I was listening to it, uh, I, I thought, paraphrasing the Bible, for it is written, in the days of Noah, the fact checkers drowned. The the people who thought that Noah was incorrect, that his facts that he was telling people that was going to take place, this this huge deluge that was going to devastate humanity, was not the fact. It wasn't true. You know, and for years he pleaded with people to alter their ways, but they would not do it. Well, they all drowned. Now, the details of Noah, some people will argue that. And of course, you have lots of people, oh, well, there was never such a flood where everything was, well, there's all kinds of references to gigantic floods uh, in history, more than one, actually. Uh, obviously, one or more of them is greater than the rest of them. And so we know that millions upon millions of animals and trees and everything else were inundated by huge deluges of water that buried these animals in layers of mud all over the world. And that's where we get all these fossils that uh, seem to be dated back to specific times, depending on how you date things. So there evidently was a flood. Legends have it. Even the Aborigines had the story of a flood there where everything was devastated. And then, you know, they, they said that, you know, that big round rock you see in Australia uh, said that some people survived by being up on that, that rock. And there were other animals that were actually even up there, took refuge on that. You know, when the waters rose up, they... They got to that rock and survived, and eventually the waters dissipated, and they came down, and and they were now the only inhabitants of Australia. And uh, as far as they knew, they could see anywhere, and this was the legend in Australia. So there's the story of this flood all over. And, of course, some people say, well, that's just ridiculous, but now that they have drilled test holes all through the plains around that big stone that sits out there kind of, stark in on the landscape they find that the, all the ground there is like an alluvial plain where huge amounts of sediment was deposited evidently through some primordial flood way back when before men could hardly remember yet that's the legend that comes to us through the aborigines of Australia that there was a flood so there appears to be a, have been a flood 
and the destruction. And I'm sure before it came, there was forewarning of this flood, but a lot of people denied it. And we'll, we'll refer to those people who denied it as fact-checkers. <laughs> so they, in the time of Noah, the fact-checkers drowned. So what are the facts today that we don't seem to know? And, of course, that's part of what we were going over in the Genesis 11. And I've added a great deal to our page on Genesis 11. But some things came to my attention last night that uh, I, I just... I just found astounding in, in a conversation that we had that was going on with uh, in our local community. And uh, I, I'll address some of this in the afternoon show uh, so that you can go to preparingyou.com, find out when the afternoon show is, and, uh, and we'll cover uh, some of that topic in an afternoon show. Maybe, maybe even having a guest on who can talk about some of these things. Uh, because they're the source of some of the information. But uh, yeah, those people who have been listening to us for a long time, uh, some of them, my own family members who have been uh, listening to this whole progression of you know, my view of things, my opinion of things, uh, the, the view of reality according to me. <laughs> Which may be accurate or may not be accurate. I mean, I, I don't want to refer to it as my truth. Because I'm not really interested in my truth. I'm interested in the truth. And, I, and I've and i only got to the opinion that I have of the truth. Because I was willing to set down the opinion of the truth that I had before that just wasn't so. And... That's one of the things that the fact checkers can't do. The fact checkers have an opinion of what they think the truth is, but they aren't humble enough to say, well, you know, maybe I'm wrong. At least until the water got pretty deep. <laughs> then, so, then suddenly they thought, oh, well, maybe I, I was wrong about there not being a flood. It's kind of like what we've actually seen in the news just in the last uh, few months where there had been these people in the new administration said that they didn't think there would be inflation, that there would prices would go up just a little bit, and then they will go back down. This is just an aberration. This is not going. It's not permanent yet. It, you know, it's it's not going to go back down to wherever it was before. And meanwhile, people are really suffering under the present inflation, and you know, people can't even make it to work. You know, I had a job once where the uh, drive, you know, when I got the job, I worked pretty close by. But then they moved their operation a long ways away. And now I either had to move a long ways away or I had to drive this distance every day. And there was expenses in driving. That was one of the earlier price raises of fuel. So fuel was expensive. It would be cheap by today's standards, but it was pretty expensive, and the wages were pretty low. And so it didn't didn't really make sense. I wasn't going to come out ahead. By the time I paid for the fuel and wear and tear on my rig and the time, that it really wasn't worth working there. And so they gave me a nickel raise, um, or offered me a nickel raise if I would keep working, but I, I said, you know, that won't even pay for half the gas. <laughs> it certainly wouldn't pay for rent anywhere. 
And uh, so I had to leave that job. I ended up working for that guy uh, later as a contractor and made a lot more per hour than I was as a laborer. But it was an interesting job that I had for a while, and I, I learned a lot. That was why I took a lot of the different jobs that I had taken over the years is to learn. Well, one of the things I was just looking at uh, last night is the Hippocratic Oath. And uh, I actually created a web page concerning the Hippocratic Oath. And uh, the, uh, the first time I saw the Hippocratic Oath, I was, I was uh, at a medical building in uh, Houston, Texas. And they had a copy of the Hippocratic Oath kind of etched in the wall there. And it wasn't the actual original because the original is much longer and written in Greek. But uh, it was a version of the Hippocratic Oath that uh, that uh, I found rather interesting at that time. I wasn't very old. I was dropped off. Uh, I was very unhealthy as a child uh, and uh, dropped off to go get my medical treatment from the, a doctor. And my mom went on to a dentist and... Uh, and while she was at the dentist, she died in the dental chair. And so I was left at this building for a long time. <laughs> so, But it ended up that even though they had called the ambulance and the coroner to come and take her body away, she actually was still alive. I've told this story before. And she could hear their conversations. And they had brought in a medical doctor and listened for a heart and couldn't find a heartbeat. And she's supposedly some sort of reaction to the Novocaine. And they thought she was dead and the the hygienist was weeping and crying and all this stuff. And she was trying to get their attention as she lay there supposedly dead and couldn't move a muscle. And so she finally uh, uh, did move her hand and, and touched the hygienist who was standing next to her uh, lady and uh, crying, weeping, because they hadn't lost a lot of patients at the dentist's office. And uh, she said, she moved, she touched me. And so they began to work on her, and then eventually she started blinking her eyes, and the heart started beating again, and she woke up, and she said, I have to go pick up my son. <laughs> and I didn't want to let her go, and she went and did pick me up. And I had waited there at this medical building for hours and hours, uh, thinking, like, where is she? What happened to her? It was really cold. And so I kept going inside. And I kept reading this Hippocratic Oath that was etched there on the wall. And I read it over and over again. And there were a couple of words I didn't know. And I was a pretty slow reader. I was pretty young. I was probably around nine years old or maybe eight years old. And uh, I kept reading that oath. And there's one word that I, I just couldn't figure out what it was. And it was a pessary. So what's a pessary? And uh, and so eventually I figured it out. But that was what I call a Kodak moment. And we'll tell you more about that when we return to Keys of the Kingdom. So you will know too. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So the, uh, the story of me uh, there at that... Uh, I was trying to remember. I think it was the Kellogg building. Uh, that was the name of the building. That uh, We're go going back more than half a century. 
But, uh, yeah, my uh, mom showed up, and uh, I wonder, asked her where she had been. <laughs> she said, oh, I had problems at the dentist. Well, she died at the dentist, uh, at least according to the way that the doctor said that she was dead, that there was no heartbeat. But uh, then she got up and uh, came and got me. But uh, I still remember reading that. I can still see th- that word there etched in the... Uh, the stone there, plaque of the building, uh, where it said pessary. That, uh, in order to do the Hippocratic Oath, in order to be, uh, to take the Hippocratic Oath, you had to know what that word meant. You know, what a pessary was. And I couldn't figure it out. You know, there was no, I couldn't Google it back in those days. There was no Google in those days. So. I had to wait years before I actually looked up the word or found a place or the time or the opportunity to look up the word. And uh, I was surprised to find out that it was a substance that would cause uh, abortion. So, you know, the Hippocratic Oath was originally probably penned, or at least it's attributed to being penned by the Pythagorean Society, which was... uh, Kind of a forerunner to the Essenes. If you if you study the Essenes, you will uh, find that uh, there were Essenes, what we call Essenes, these people with this particular form of self-government, because that's what the Essenes were. They were a form of self-government. They had their what you might call religious orders, and uh, their order was uh, a means by which they learned to govern themselves. And those Essenes did things a certain way. And and we've talked about them before. And, of course, we have articles up at Preparing You so you can go read about the Essenes. And there's a lot more than we have in the article. There's a lot more that I actually was working on this morning that I could add to that. Uh, because there were different kinds of Essenes. And, of course, they didn't call themselves Essenes. So, exactly where a, a scene and a scene uh, begins and uh, something else leaves off is uh, difficult to to understand. But the reality is is that the Essenes um, took care of one another through charity. It was very important that they took care of their the people of their society through uh, charity rather than through force. And to take care of one another through force is would be in opposition to the teachings of the Essenes. It, it would not be acceptable. It would be something that would literally be extremely unacceptable. But uh, anyway, back to Pythagoras and his uh, oath. And there's evidence that the oath was around for a long time before that. And oath or vow, uh, swear, you weren't swearing to particular individuals. You weren't subjecting yourself to the penalties of perjury according to some legal system. That this was a personal commitment. A personal prayer that you would abide by the fundamental principles of this Hippocratic Oath, uh, which is named after Hippocrates. But uh, the 
there are a number of people. I, I, I went and looked it up last night, uh, or actually early this morning, uh, and I, there were a number of people that wrote about it and said it was divided into four sections. And I believe it was divided into four sections, but on reading their four sections, I thought they, they've divided this up differently. That isn't the sections I see when I read it. So I, I put it down at preparing you so you can look up Hippocratic Oath and you can see the four sections. And basically it's a, a, it's a covenant to mutually honor teacher and student as if they were family. And of course then you have to define family. What is a family and how important is family to societies back then? See, all your social welfare was dependent upon the family. The family, this was one of your duties to God and your fellow man was to take care of your family. That's where it began. But the duty to your fellow man was also to take care of your fellow man. Back to what I was saying where the Teutons believed that it was a part of their duty to protect not only their family but their neighbors and their families. And so in the Hippocratic Oath they had this idea that the teacher and student were actually now becoming like a family. It would become like a group that they had to not only take care of the, one another, but even their their families, the students' families, the teachers' families, the teachers' children. And this idea of loyalty and caring for was essential in society because... There was nobody else to care for you but those who voluntarily chose to care for you. I mean, if you went into the bondage of Egypt, the Pharaoh would care for you. He would provide you with, you know, that's how they went in is he provided them with free grain during a famine. And the people had to make an agreement, okay, we will... we. We would like to receive your free grain because our money has run out, our land has run out, our, our animals and livestock. We've given everything up in order to buy grain and the famine persists. So now we will give a 20% of our labor, one-fifth of our labor to the Pharaoh if he continues to supply us with free bread, you know, grain. And that's how they went into the bondage of Egypt is they looked to the government to give them charity. Now, the Pharaoh, in all honesty, he had put up this grain out of his own pocket, out of his own wealth, because the people of Egypt weren't subject to income tax. They weren't subject to this one-fifth or 20% uh, at that time, because we see in the biblical text that they went in to this bondage to the Pharaoh at the same time, at the same famine. It wasn't just the Israelites who did this. It was lots of people, including the people of Egypt. So when he was giving grain, he was giving out of his own wealth, out of his own resources. But then over time, that that wealth that uh, had to be replenished and he replenished it with that 20% of labor. So that if you, you know, if you were a grain farmer in Egypt, 20% of your crop would go to the Pharaoh. And he would refill his granaries with that grain. Grain was like money in Egypt. So, back to the Hippocratic Oath, the, uh, 
they had first this covenant with student and teacher that they had to care about one another as much as they cared about their own family. But the second part was there was a duty to do no harm, nor any any kind of injustice to to the student or to the teacher or to anybody. Respecting the wisdom of diet. Because one of the principles of Hippocrates was let your food be your medicine. They realized that what you eat is often the cause of your illness. So, all those physicians who took the Hippocratic Oath were dietitians. They understood that what you eat is going to affect your health. And so they were very acutely aware of diet as a part of a health health regimen. Not only for their patient, but for themselves. And so that's another part of their Hippocratic Oath. This is the second part. And that also includes to give no poison or pessary. Uh, even if it is requested... By the patient. They they could not give something they would know, they knew could do harm to their patient. Uh, or to themselves or to their students or to anyone. And the final part of this do no harm was also to do no surgery. They actually, uh, it states, you know, I mean it's a little bit different in the Greek, but... Uh, it says, but I will keep pure and holy, that be separate, both my life and my art. I will not use the knife, nor even verily on uh, sufferers from stones. But I will give place to such as are craftsmen. Therein, so this physician is not a surgeon. Sir, we see that today. You know, somebody will be a surgeon, somebody else will be a you know, general practitioner, or maybe somebody like Fauci would be a bureaucrat. <laughs> and uh, so, but that you know, Fauci's not a physician according to this Hippocratic oath because. You know, he was a big advocate of remdesivir, which barely made it through the trials. And if you really examined the trials, you would know that it didn't even make it through the trials. They had to stop the use of remdesivir for many people because it had so many ill effects. It, it, it's a poison. It, it, and it actually, you know, caused, we, we, I talked about it, I mentioned somebody I know who, went on remdesivir and almost immediately died of kidney failure, which is one of the symptoms they saw in the original trials. Because it's a poison to the kidneys. It might help somewhere else, but it's going to be damaging your kidneys. And if your kidneys are already a little bit weakened or overworked, you're probably going to die of kidney failure. And of course, many, 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 many people did. But it's okay for him to give those poisons, because I don't think he ever took the Hippocratic Oath. That's not his deal. He's also not a surgeon. Uh, although he did try to cut out some of the remedies that other people found successful in treating this flu virus that was going around. 
you know, just recently I put on uh, uh, some pictures on Facebook page of uh, uh, it, I, I found them rather stark uh, pictures. They were from a game camera that we set up near where the sheep stay at night. And uh, in walks this bobcat and stares into the lens. That's the first picture we have of him staring straight into the lens of the camera. And so I put it up on my Facebook page. You can look up Brother Gregory Facebook page if you want to see the pictures. But uh, the cats, I also heard last night, uh, which I guess I knew before, is that cats can carry COVID. <laughs> so your house cat can carry COVID. So, you know, if you're going to wear a mask, you, you probably need to put a mask on your cat too. Because I know somebody who's really likes cats and they're still wearing a mask everywhere they go and they they probably don't realize they can get COVID from their cats. And so you're not going to get rid of it. You, the only way you'll be safe from it is natural immunity. But uh, anyway, so uh, he did cut out those other treatments and, and made it difficult for people to get. So in that sense, he was a social surgeon. But Back to these four precepts that we see in this Hippocratic Oath is uh, confidentiality was also sacred. Because in treating their patients, they would find out, you know, they have to ask, you know, what about this? Do, do you do this? Uh, do you eat this? Do you, uh, have you been, you know, whatever. You find out about private information that if you divulged it could hurt your patient. So, Confidential, you had to, part of your oath was to keep confidential anything that you might find out in treating your patient and helping your patient. But the last thing was a violation of these precepts to do no harm opens my and my profession to harm. And what it is, is this is the enforcement arm of the Hippocratic Oath. That if you violate the, any one of the first three precepts, then you should expect to be violated in the same way. That they believed in a cause and effect universe, which is probably why they thought diet was so important. What you do is affecting your health. It isn't a matter, you know, today people go to the doctor and they just want a remedy. They don't want to change what they're doing. You know, somebody who has, uh, maybe they're obese. They weigh 400 pounds and they've got, you know, bad knees. And they want to go to the doctor and get something to take care of their knees. But they don't want to go on a diet and lose a couple hundred pounds. Uh, so they're, they're looking for remedies, but they're not looking for change. And of course, that's, that's a poor approach to health. And, but it seems to be the modern consensus to health. So what does this have to do with what we're going to talk about today? <laughs> I, I took that little side trip and, and hopefully as I was led to do that, to take a look at that Hippocratic Oath and realize that, and I mentioned it before that, you know, abortion was around in the bondage of Egypt. That was what they were doing. They were casting out their brephos, according to the New Testament, using the Greek word for fetus. Because that's really what that word brephos means. 
it means casting out. And, and they go on to say that Moses was timely generated. In other words, he went full term. His mother did not take a pessary that would have caused a spontaneous abortion. That she went full term and then she's got this baby and she's got to hide it somewhere so that it makes this wicker basket and and puts tar all around it uh, to seal it up so that it will float. And of course, that's what Noah did with the, the ark is that he made it out of acacia wood, but then he put tar around it to seal up its seams, to caulk its seams. So it would float. So you have kind of these parallels in the stories that are going on. So one of the things that we need to do is find the truth, because the truth floats. <laughs> That's just to give you a heads up, the truth floats. And of course, when we were looking at Genesis 11, we talked about the uh, plain of Shinar, which is the plain of two rivers. And the, all the, the things in these stories are symbolic. They would tell these stories and people would listen to these stories and they would remember the story and there would be a meaning to the story. And you would, you would ask the storyteller, well, wh- what does that mean? Why are they on this plane with two rivers? Because there's a choice. You can go on one river, you can go on the other river. The reality is all the rivers of life that we can go down, end up at death. A major cause of death is life. There would be no death without life. You know, so your birth is the beginning of your road, your river to death, where you will face death. And, you know, you can come to a tributary in the river where the river actually goes to the left or to the right. Now, it may join up again farther down the road, and it all joins up again at death. But if you take this river, there may be rapids and waterfalls. If you take this river, it may be a little bit longer, but the journey may be smoother. But once you take one fork or the other, you're going to either see rapids or smooth water. You, you, what, your choice is only is which river do you take? And I really believe this is the fundamentals of, of Genesis 10 and Genesis 11. Is what river are you going to take? And of course we talked about it last week and, and you can listen to the audios. Uh, and I've added a great deal to the page so that you can find backing for this explanation of this story, this myth. Of the Tower of Babylon. If they had really made a Tower of Babylon. Trying to make these bricks all the way up to heaven. They would have found it by now. Because there would be a lot of remains. To it. But. It's not really about a tower. Made out of bricks. It's about. One form of government. And it's not the form of government. Preached by Christ. It's the form of government. Preached by Nimrod. And many other people since. It's the form of government preached by FDR. It's the form of government preached by Klaus Schwab and Noah Harari. And if you want to know more about that, you just have to listen to the the audios. And uh, we'll tell you where you can listen to them if you join the network. 
And speaking of the network, uh, coming up on August 21st, uh, the weekend of August 21st, we're going to have the Burning Bush Festival here uh, this year. And uh, you can come to that. that that's, that's a week before <laughs> Burning Man. So you can you can come to the Burning Bush Festival, and then you go straight on to Burning Man if you want to go to Burning Man. Decidedly different events, but there will be things that I share with the ministers. If you do what Christ commanded, which is sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, and start taking care of your neighbor's family as much as you want to have your own family taken care of, which is the nature of the kingdom of God. And his righteousness because, and it is the nature of pure religion where you care about your neighbor's family as much as you care about your own. That if you do that, I will share more information and more with those that sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. And I will do it through the ministers they choose for themselves. And uh, I will also share at the burning Bush Festival, if you come out to the Burning Bush Festival. If you come out, bring your own food. Bring food to share with others. Uh, bring your own camping gear. There are some hotels around, uh, and uh, they may be available, but you might want to book them now. There is an RV park next door. But uh, if you're interested, just uh, uh, join the network, and they'll tell you more. So... This idea, and, and then maybe you can make a choice as to what river you want to follow. So, we talked about this uh, abortion just a little bit in this show and, and also in the last one. And, of course, it's been a big hot topic in the news. Uh, nobody's taken away any abortion rights, whatever that, whatever incarnation that is. Uh, with the Supreme Court decision, it's actually giving you a power of choice, at least on a state level. Now, in the kingdom of God, your power of choice is on an individual level. Because the division of power in the kingdom of God is the division of every individual family. Because the family is an institution of God. And the, that is the essential building block of the kingdom of God. And in the kingdom of God, there were altars of clay. That's Adama. That's you and your family. And there were altars of stones. That would be the men you pick and choose. You can't hew those stones, but they have to come together to help provide that social safety net of pure religion that takes care of the needy of your society without coveting your neighbor's goods. Without the use of exercising authority. Without the use of force. But with what the Old Testament calls free will offerings. And the New Testament calls charity. See, if you're not taking care of the needy of your society through charity, through free will offerings. You're making the word of God to none effect. That's what Christ meant by the Pharisees making the word of God to none effect through their Corban. Corban meaning sacrifice. Because their sacrifice at that time was no longer free will offerings. You signed up and you had to pay in. Just like they signed up in Egypt to get the free bread of Caesar. Then they had to pay in one-fifth of their labor to, I said Caesar, to Pharaoh. The same thing as Pharaoh, same thing as Caesar. The same thing as FDR. 
The same thing as LBJ. If you sign up for the social safety net of FDR or Nimrod, who is a mighty provider instead of the Lord. We have an article up on Nimrod. You can read more about him. If you sign up for that, you have to pay in. It's no longer charity. It's no longer free will offering. It's it's an offering compelled by men who exercise authority against the way of Christ in opposition to the way of Christ. But if you stay tuned, we'll tell you more about the opportunities that you have before you. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So what are your options if you're now in the bondage of Egypt? I mean, the bondage of Egypt was a percentage of your labor belonged to the government. And you didn't really own your land or your livestock. And you didn't own your children. Your children were born in bondage. And uh, the people found this to be a burdensome thing because, of course, there was a new pharaoh in town. And, you know, my studies show me that it was Tutankhamen the third who was the pharaoh at the time of the bondage of Egypt at the time that they departed from Egypt, where the plagues took place. And that's why when they referred to Moses, they said, but we called him Moses not because he was the legitimate Tutankhamen the third who owned the people. When he said, let my people go, he means the people I own. But he was called Moses because he was drawn from the water. Because Moses was pulled out of the river of in Shinar that was led them into bondage. <laughs> so they had gone down this river of bondage. And they went down that river of bondage. When did they make the choice to go down the river of bondage? When did the Israelites, the you know, the sons of Abraham, uh, Isaac, and Jacob, when did they decide to go down the river of bondage rather than the river of liberty under God? They decided to go down the river of bondage when they decided to sell their own brother, Joseph, into bondage. Because as you judge, so shall you be judged. So if you decide... To turn your neighbor into a human resource so that you can have free stuff. You will be turned into a place of bondage. You will be sold into bondage. You will go into bondage. Cause and effect. Universe is built in. And so when you make that decision to make your neighbor a human resource, you will become a human resource. Now, if you want to reverse that, you have to reverse your relationship with your neighbor. Instead of looking to force your neighbor to contribute to your welfare, you must choose by consent to be the welfare of your neighbor. To lay down your life daily for your neighbor, near and far. Not just those neighbors who love you, but even those neighbors who don't love you. The, and, and I tell you, a neighbor who does not love you, you know, I mean, the, the crazy guy in the, uh, in, in the cemetery, we'll call him Joey. And there's a reason why I use that word, Joey. And that Jesus goes there and casts out the demons of joy. 
which are legion, because they are many. And then he becomes this docile individual who follows Jesus. Because the demons were cast out. The demons that were controlling him. The, the anger, fear, resentment that led him to be this almost like beast-like man in the cemetery. That he suddenly changed. Because things in him changed. And went another way. He was transported to a different river. (laughs) Rather than the river that he was on. So, anyway, we talked last week that, you know, everybody's going to have you believe that all the people in uh, the earth, the whole earth, had one language. That's, That's what they teach you. Even though, like I said, in the very chapter before, in chapter 10, they talk about the people being divided according to their tongue. And the word tongue there is also translated language. Now, the word that they translate language here in Genesis 11, it doesn't, it's almost never translated language. As a matter of fact, it appears uh, like 157 times, uh, I'm trying to think how many times, maybe it's 175 times, uh, it appears in the Bible. This particular, yeah, 175 occurrences in the Bible. Uh, sepan, sepan is, is the word. Uh, but the, the, the particular form that we see in Genesis 11 only appears eight times. So 175 times it is a combination of letters be it uh, Shen, uh, see if I remember the letters. Yeah, be it Shen, Paya, uh, Hey. And, uh, but it only appears eight times in that particular form. Uh, well, actually, it appears, you know, with a be it uh, maybe ten times at the beginning. Maybe more, uh, maybe ten or twelve times. Uh, sometimes it's only the two letters. Um, sometimes it includes a tav. Uh, but this particular form, these three basic letters, it only appears eight times. It is only translated language once, and and that's in Genesis. It's translated, it appears in Exodus 28.32, and it's translated, there shall be a binding. Well, how is there shall be a binding the same as the word language? Uh, that's actually in the New America Standard, in, in the King James Bible, it's thereof it shall have a binding. In Exodus 39.23, it's, uh, translated with a band or with a binding. In Isaiah, it is translated stammering lips. In uh, Well, that's in Isaiah 28. In Isaiah 35, it's translated unintelligible speech. So it, it, that can be translated speech, but only in, in relationship to unintelligible speech. In Ezekiel 3, 5, 
uh, unintelligible speech or strange speech. In Ezekiel 3.6, unintelligible speech or strange speech. So a lot of times it's this combination of letters or, or, and, and words that gives you the meaning. But it's not, it doesn't mean language. It's not the normal word for language. We know that they were already divided according to their language. So when you somebody tells you that they all had one language and this is going to be confounded, it's going to be confused so that they can't understand each other anymore, they're not actually talking about their language being confused, where all of a sudden they all wake up and they're all speaking different languages. That's not the story. That's not what they're telling you. The last occurrence of this particular word is in uh, Zephaniah. And it's in uh, chapter 3, verse 9. And so, in that Zephaniah, what, what, what does it actually say? It actually says, For then will I turn to the people a pure language, that they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve Him with one consent. So, in, in that uh, Zephaniah 3.9, we see this idea that something changes back. You know, there was this confusion, un- uh, uh, unintelligible speech, this binding of the mind that also binds the person because as the mind is bound, so is the person bound. But he, he will give you back this speech so that you can understand this. But he calls it a pure speech using a particular word that is, you know, we see translated pure at least. Uh, I don't know how many times that that's translated pure. It's not always translated pure. I think it's like, uh, I, I think it's only appears at one time. It, it appears in the Bible uh, numerous times, but in that particular form, uh, be it Resh, Vav, uh, Delet, uh, Hey, it only appears in that one verse where he talks about this pure language. So, you know, th- I don't want to turn everything into a Hebrew-Greek class, but the reality is is that uh, ultimately the only way you're going to understand what I'm trying to tell you or what this story is trying to tell you is that the Holy Spirit guides you. Because here in Zephaniah, he's saying that he's going to give his people this purified lips, this purified understanding, this purified comprehension and at least I think it's interesting that he ends this statement it's given to you because you call upon the name of the Lord you don't call upon the name of the Pharaoh or FDR or or Joe Biden or Donald Trump or any of these other kingdoms of the world you're actually calling upon the Lord and that would mean calling upon the way of the Lord in in other words following the ways of the Lord the ways of Christ 
which is to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and take care of one another with charity, which is a unique idea and should be just on the tip of every mind, of every tongue, of every Christian. So it understands that I can't, I can't ask somebody who exercises authority to become my benefactor by taking away from my neighbor. I can't do that. That would not be following the commandments of Christ. And it's, he, we will only abide in his love and his protection if we keep the commandments of Christ. If you love me, keep my commandments, he says. So why is that so difficult? Why is it so difficult to take care of one another through charity? Well, the churches don't do it anymore. The churches send you to, uh, what was that uh, story just this week? Uh, Pelosi was barred from, she's supposedly a Catholic, and she was barred from communion by, I think, an archbishop of her diocese. And she's been allowed to go to take communion from the Pope. Pope says it's okay to abort children. You know, that that's not going to keep you from taking communion. <laughs> so, you know, like, so it brings new meaning to, is the Pope Catholic? So, <laughs> But it, these are the bizarre things that are going on. It's almost unintelligible, except for the fact that it is unintelligible if you don't understand the story of Babel and what they were really doing. That they were turning clay into bricks to be used as stones. And of course the stones at the altars of Abraham were the people that you looked out amongst yourselves and found that you trusted and you consented to give them free will offerings to help take care of the needy of your society. But you kept the right to decide who you were going to give to and how much you were going to give. Because you were free souls under God. And the division of power in the kingdom of God is with each individual and each individual family. That we, we aren't supposed to exercise authority one over the other and force the contributions of the people like the governments of the Gentiles. The government of the church is different than that. Because Christ said you're not to be like the governments of the Gentiles who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority. Yet, all these people who go to their churches and say they are Christians, that's how they take care of the needy of their society. That's not pure religion. That's impure religion. But in Zephaniah 9, chapter 3, verse 9, it says, to serve him with one consent. You, you take this river whereby you take care of one another through consent, through free will offerings. He goes on in verse 10, From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my suppliants, even the daughter of my dispersed, shall bring mine offering. How do they bring it? By consent. Not by force. This is, takes us back to John the Baptist. John the Baptist, until John the Baptist, everybody was trying to do it by force. You sign up. You register with Herod and his temple, either the temple at Jerusalem or the temple of Roma, because he built that one too. But they're both the same system, where you sign up and then you, you have to pay in. 
the temple of Jerusalem sent out scribes to take account of what you make, what you earn. And, and they Gabbai and Molkai. And they would determine what you owed in taxes and you had to pay that. Your your temple contribution had to go to the temple. And and it built a really big temple and had lots of gold. And everybody says, well, we're, we're socially secure because we have all our gold in, in the temple. We can see it. And so therefore we know there's money there to take care of us as a social safety net because that's what the temples were. Most of the, many of the temples operated as a social safety net. Some of them operated, like I said, like the Temple of Mineta was actually minting the coins. That was, that was almost its sole job. Temple of Ephesus minted coins, but they also invested it like an insurance policy that, they, you know, they owned ships and, and, and harbors and so they were making money and so then your social security was secure through the temple at Ephesus. But the Christians were accused of robbing the temple at Ephesus because people were signing up with the apostles that had a different system in mind and not signed up with the temple at Ephesus. So many of the supporters that had supported the temple at Ephesus were now supporting the church. So, these are the ones who were robbing the temple of not, they weren't breaking into the vault, they were, people were repenting, thinking differently, and that, that if we're going to be a free people, we need to take care of one another with free will offerings. Not with forced offerings, forced contributions. This is the whole theme throughout the Bible. Whether you're reading Zephaniah or Genesis, or Isaiah, or Exodus. But people can't see that that they think social justice is a political means. And and it's an apostasy. They've actually departed. That's what apostasy means. It, it, It has to do with leaving and departing from the doctrines of Moses, the doctrines of Abraham, the doctrines of Jesus Christ. That's apostasy. Apostasy is not just a religious thing. It's a religious and political thing. And we'll talk more about that at another show. But, yeah, apostasy can be an abandonment or renunciation of a religious or political belief. That That's the definition of apostasy. Well, Jesus believed that you should take care of one another through charity. FDR said you should take care of one another through forced taxation. And, of course, that's what Pharaoh wanted to do. That's what Caesar started doing. You know, Rome was around for years taking care of the needy through charity. But then they got another idea. They started thinking differently. And they started thinking, well, we'll take care of one another through force. We're forced people to contribute. And of course they started with selling the you know, the the poor Gauls into slavery. Made made Caesar one of the richest men in all of Rome. He had so much wealth coming in from the sale, sale of these poor Gauls, these Frenchmen who were now being populated all over the Mediterranean as slaves. But, because uh, that's 
you know, that's where France used to be, or what is today is where Gaul used to be. Gaul was divided into three parts, according to Gaulus Trius Parthes. Est. That's what Caesar writes when he when he came, he saw he conquered. Gaul is divided into three parts. And because it was divided, he was able to conquer it. First he conquered the ones who didn't ally themselves with him, and then he conquered the ones that did. And that's, of course, how you've been conquered, is that you began to force your neighbor. You started with, well, we're just going to, income tax was only on the rich. Income tax wasn't on on people made under, you had to make equivalent of almost a million dollars before you owed any income tax. At least several hundred thousand dollars. I'd say about a million. You almost had to make a million dollars as a fiduciary to pay any income tax. But now you can pay income tax if you make (laughs) $30,000. And at least a portion of that is your Social Security tax, which used to be like 1.5%, and now it's 14%. Just the, just your Social Security is almost up to what you had to pay when you were in bondage in Egypt. And, and all this is taking place right before your eyes while you were singing in church. And, and it's been going on now for almost a century. I mean, you know, Social Security Act was 19, what, 1933? June 5th, 1933. That's not quite a hundred years ago, but it's pretty get pretty close to a hundred years ago. And with that, you departed from the ways of Christ. You weren't going to take care of the needy through charity anymore. You were going to take care of the needy through force contributions. Of course, you had started this already with your public education. Public schools used to be built by voluntary labor and voluntary contributions. Churches often started the first public schools open to anybody in the community could go there and get an education. And those that had extra funds helped support that educational institution. But that was your original public schools. But then you started saying, well, let's tax people. Let's tax our neighbor. Let's force our neighbor to contribute so that we can have free education. Because free education is a good thing. But coveting your neighbor's goods is not a good thing. And it takes you down that other river. And that's where you've been going. You've been going down that other river. You And the stones of your altar... You know, the, the ones who redistribute the wealth of your society, they're baked in the furnace of government. Their, their brains are baked. And this is what we'll probably talk about in the afternoon show, because, I mean, it, I, you know, I'll have to see if I can get willing participants, but these are public documents that we'll be quoting from. But, uh, and, and we'll, Maybe you mentioned the actual people involved in this, their names, because it, it's it's a fascinating story. And, and to people who are raised in this household, it, it's shocking. But uh, they, the people who are perpetrating this, they can't even see it. That they're blind. Of course, that's where you're at. Is you have blind guides, 
And unfortunately, many of your ministers are blind. Because they think they believe in Jesus. You know, we, we talked about in Genesis, and you can go back and you'll, we'll eventually have all the audios up there. The word go to is about a choice. You get to choose what river you go down to. Will you build altars of clay and stone based on charity and free will offerings? Or will you build cities of bricks baked into the shape and directives of the men who fire the furnaces of that city? And they will redistribute the wealth according to their desire. Now, how will they stick these bricks together? Because, I mean, how did they fit the stones of the altar together? Because the same word for a gathering of stones was a gathering of friends. You couldn't chisel the stones. You had to fit them together. People think, although it's some magical way in which they form the stones. No, it's living stones. It always was living stones. You're missing the story. But in the story of Babel, they stick them together with slime. Well, at least that's the way it's translated. Slime from the swamp? No, it's actually slime from the tar pits. They stick them together. Kind of messy, but it, it works. Well, who, how, how do they stick them together? How do they control them? How do they bind them together with slime, this tar? Well, what's the slime of society today? Isn't it lawyers? <laughs> I mean, I, my father was a lawyer, and I've told the jokes and stories that he used to tell me about. He was dishonest enough to be a lawyer, but not dishonest enough to be a politician. Uh, so, uh, and, and he was probably the most honest lawyer. I mean, if he even said that out loud, that shows that he was a lot more honest than most people. <laughs> I mean, God gave me my parents, and I thank God for them. Because they showed me many, many, many things. And uh, through them, I was able to see many, many things. But ultimately, it's God who's my Father. But if we go back and read in Matthew twenty-two thirty-five, then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question. Why? Tempting him. And saying, da-da-da-da. Or, or Luke 7.30. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves, being not baptized of him, of Jesus Christ, of John the Baptist. And the Lord said, Whereunto then shall I liken the men of this generation? And to what are they like? They are like unto children sitting in the marketplace and calling one to another and saying, We have piped unto you and you have not danced and we have mourned to you and ye have not wept. So, this is why on the book Covenants of the Gods we have the Pied Piper who takes your children. We'll be back to Keys of the Kingdom. So welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So we see this, these patterns that are constantly being repeated where, you know, Jesus talks about, you know, woe unto these lawyers and, uh, and, uh, 
they they create these situations uh, in a legal system in a, a city. This reference, I mean, the, even the word in Hebrew for city is a terror. Uh, when when the uh, Israelites wanted to have a king, and Samuel warns them, First Samuel eight warns them that that he's going to take and take and take and take and take and take and take. And they say, give us a king anyway. Uh, they went back to their cities once they were given a king. They went to their cities when they decided uh, we made a mistake. We went down the wrong river and now we don't want to have a king. And when they had to go to the king and ask Rehoboam to release us, let's go back to the way it was when we had no king in Israel where we took care of one another through faith, hope, and charity. The king said, no, my father whipped you with whips. I'm going to whip you with scorpions. And some of the people said, what is David to us? And they went back to their tents. They didn't go back to their cities. They didn't go back to their citizenship, their civil status. Paul talks about the fact that our civil affairs are in heaven. Well, the way your civil affairs are in heaven is that you take care of one another through that one consent that they talk about in Zephaniah. It's a new language. It's a new way of thinking. But most people can't think that way. They're blind guides. Your pastors are blind guides. They're telling you that you're saved while you're still a worker of iniquity. And Christ warns that many would think that they are believers in Him when they're actually workers of iniquity. And we're showing you where the clear evidence of that iniquity lies. It lies in the lie that you're actually doing it the way Christ said to do, that you're actually a follower of Christ. It mourned to you, and ye have not wept, he said. You, the pied... They, they piped unto you, but you have not wept. See, verse 33 goes on, and he starts right away. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and ye say, he hath a devil. Why? Because he's telling people to take care of one another through charity. If you have two coats and your neighbor has none, share. Do the same in meats. That's not the way Herod and the Pharisees were doing it. They were saying, sign up with the temple through our system of synagogues, which was a system of tens, hundreds, and thousands. A synagogue was ten families. And we will take care of the needy of your society. If your son is blind, we will help take care of your son. If you fall on old age, we will help take care of you too. And you can't rely on your son because your son is blind. <laughs> so, so this is why we see in John where there we have a blind man who now sees and he's professing Jesus as the Christ, as the King. That's a Christ, the anointed. It says, oh, you're going to get cast out. And they say, go to the parents. And their parents say, well, we, do, we can't say. Because they know that if they say that Jesus is the Christ, 
they'll be cast out of the temple and the, the, the system of the synagogues, the system of social welfare, the social safety net set up by Herod and the Pharisees, just like the social safety net set up by FDR. And men like LBJ and Barack Obama and Biden and even all your Republicans. Yeah, the Republicans don't want as much taken from (laughs) your neighbor as the Democrats do. But they still cleave to their social welfare system based on force. Force contributions. How any Christian... Any real Christian would fall for that is is just astounding to me. But so many people will reject that idea. No, it can't be. Can't be because I'm saved. I believe in Jesus. But you don't believe in what he said. You're not doing what he said to do. You're not keeping his commandments. You're coveting one another's goods. And even Peter and Paul, James, said, you know, pure religion is taking care of one another without... The constitutional orders and systems of men like FDR and LBJ and Barack Obama. You're supposed to be, that, that's pure religion. It's taking care of one another through faith, hope, and charity. John the Baptist wouldn't do it through force. He would only do it through charity. Jesus only preached doing it through charity. Peter warns that if you do it through covetous practices, you'll become merchandise and curse your children. But you're doing it. You're doing it through covetous practices. You're desiring more and more benefits at the expense of your neighbor. You're just saying that the Democrats went too far. But both the Democrats and the Republicans have gone down the same river on the plains of Shinar. Both of them have their stones They have bricks for stones and those stones will bust in your door and take from you if you don't give what you owe. You owe Caesar now because you don't have Jesus as your real king. You say, well, you know, Jesus is my king. No. Whose table are you eating at? Are you eating at the table of the kings of the world? Or are you eating at the table of Christ? And, you know, that may be a decision I haven't eaten today. <laughs> so, uh, and if I eat, I will eat at the table of Christ. So, John the Baptist didn't have a devil. He was just doing something contrary to the Pharisees. The Son of Man is coming, eating, and drinking including with Pharisees, because, I mean, that's the very next line after, if you get into verse 35. But he says, Behold, a gladness man and a wine-bibber and a friend of publicans and sinners. But they themselves are workers of iniquity. The Pharisees were workers of iniquity because they created this system that Abraham was told to get out of. Abraham was told to get out of Ur out of Haran. Well, what was distinctive about Ur and Haran? They were both cities. This both back in the days of Babel and Hammurabi codes. And it was legal system. 
that actually promoted slavery. I mean, according to Hammurabi codes, if you helped a slave slave get free, it was punishable by death. And of course, Christ came to set the captive free. The ultimate change that we need to have, that we need to foment in our own lives, is that we need to think differently. We need to repent. We need to realize that forcing our neighbor to contribute to our welfare is going against the righteousness of God. You know, in Luke 11.45, Then answered one of the lawyers and said unto him, Master, thus saying, Thou reproachest us all. And he said, Woe unto you also, ye lawyers, for ye laid men with burdens, grievous to be born. And ye yourselves touch not the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe unto you, for ye build the sepulchres of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. Truly ye bear witness that ye allowed the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them. And ye build their sepulchres, and therefore also the wisdom of God. You've killed the wisdom of God. The wisdom of righteousness. The foundations of the kingdom of God. Because you've taken out of the hands of the people that daily consent and a daily ministration of charity, of pure religion. And the people have gone down that river. Now you want to be transferred over to the still waters. You want, you want to be set free from your captivity. Well, these two rivers that have diverged, they will meet again. And unfortunately, there will be death of many, just like there was in the days in the plagues of Egypt. But you either have to go the way of righteousness or continue to go the way that You've been going. And this is what, this is why the plagues, why God hardened the heart of the Pharaoh so that the people had to stay there in bondage for a period. This is why Jesus says, pay unto Caesar what is Caesar's. But when they were in bondage, they had to pay their tally of bricks, but they had to clean in the field at night for their benefits, for their straw. Francis Chan, who, you know, I like Francis Chan, a lot of things he says, but he he just does not seem to take it far enough. I don't know if he's worried about losing his constituency or what. Maybe it's just not yet time, but maybe, maybe he will begin to actually, I know a lot of pastors that are pretty good guys, pretty close to the kingdom. And Jesus talks about Pharisees who came, who were very close to the kingdom. But a day of reckoning eventually came where they had to make a decision as to whether to preach the whole gospel or not. Because if you don't preach the whole gospel, you preach a lie. And in his letters to the church, he writes, The early church was known for how they care for one another. They were focused on eternity and cared little about possessions. But I can show you in 
in all kinds of early writings of the early uh, church writers that they said, no, possessions were important because without returning every man to his possessions and every man to his family, which was what Jubilee was all about, uh, setting of the captive free, without returning them to your possessions, how can you have charity? If you own nothing, you don't have charity. But in reality, you can have charity with every breath of your life. You can have charity. That statement about uh, the early Christian caring for one another is true. And the same with the Essenes. Same with a lot of different societies. But the idea that they did not care about possessions is misleading. While close to the truth, it can and has led modern Christians into an iniquitous apostasy because they're not taking care of one another through faith, hope, and charity. They take care of one another through what they call social justice, through systems of government that exercise authority one over the other and force the contributions of the people. You know, the prophecies concerning the end of our captivity was to proclaim that liberty throughout the land unto the inhabitants thereof. Not just the Christians, but to all the inhabitants thereof. See, the Romans were willing to put the turn the Gauls into slaves instead of prosecuting Caesar for his war crimes against the Gauls. Because he gave so many benefits to the people. And so they turned a blind eye to the fact that where did the money come from? And that's that's what people are doing today. But now they it's not just a blind eye. Both eyes are blind. They just can't see it. They can't see the truth. Can you see the truth? If you want to see more of the truth, you have to be willing to see what truth God is showing you now. So it will be your jubilee unto you. And you shall return every man unto his possession. That means your neighbor. You have to stop coveting the goods of your neighbor through the men who exercise authority. That means home school, home health, home defense. Home protection, not just for your home, but for your neighbors. Community watch. I mean, the the ways in which that loving your neighbor can manifest itself are infinitesimally everywhere in every aspect of your life. And the, it, it can expound in so many ways I can't even imagine them all. But you shouldn't be imagining them. You should be doing them. So you need to return every man to his family and every man to his possession. There's nothing wrong with possessions. They allow us charitable activity, fervent charity, hopefully, which is what the early church had was this. It was a welfare system based on that consent mentioned in Zephaniah. And FDR in his daily ministration, which is the daily ministration of the modern Christians, has been at a table of legal charity. 
Legal charity is that binding charity. Legal systems of charity are not real charity. They're forced charity. And the men who force them are the bricks bound together by slime, by the legal system. They place huge burdens upon the people and will betray the people so that they do not have access to true social safety net. They they will fail. You know, that was the unrighteous mammon. The wealth that they had accumulated, mammon meaning accumulation of wealth, the unrighteous mammon, accumulation of wealth, accumulation of a treasury. The word Corbin is also translated treasury. And it means sacrifice because that's how you fill your treasuries with the sacrifices of your neighbor. Except for now, your, your treasuries are empty. There's debt notes there. Because debt is bondage. You're, you're again entangled in the elements of the world. In the elements of bondage. You've gone back to the bondage of Egypt. Despite what Galatians said. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again in the yoke of bondage. What what God had done through Jesus Christ was set the captive free because when the Pharisees said they had no king but Caesar, and Caesar said Jesus Christ is the king of the Jews, the apostles were able to go into the government temple at Jerusalem and work daily in that temple, rightly dividing the bread from house to house. Because they were men of charity. And they were creating a system of charity. Modern Christians need to start doing that. Taking care of one another through a system of charity. Through a system of righteousness. Because it isn't righteous to covet your neighbor's goods. It's only righteous to take care of one another through charity. Behold, I, Paul, he says, he said, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit ye nothing. Now he's giving you an example. You know, because he's, he's saying the ritual, the external ritual is nothing. For I testify against every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. And see, the law that was nailed to the Christ was the law of the Pharisees that said that you had to contribute. Whether the guy by a Molkai, uh, bricks of their city of blood could come to your house and force the contributions of the people. And it was legal. It was legally binding. Because they were bound together by a system of law. The woe unto you lawyers. The, the system whereby you took the benefit. Now you owe the... You, you, you have to pay the piper. You danced to the music. You went and got the benefit, the advantages. So you are in bondage. You can't say oh, it's fraud. You are in bondage. But there's hope. 
if you think differently. And and those that thinking alters your actions. You won't be able to make it down that river, down that way, without the miracle of God, the intervention of God. But that's that's the process of salvation. It will take that divine intervention. Paul goes on to say, For I testify against to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ is become of no effect unto you, whoever, whosoever of you are justified by the law ye are fallen from grace. Again, the law of the Pharisees was what was nailed to the cross. The legal system of the Pharisees, this is one of the weaknesses of the Greek language, is they only have one word for law. Nomos. And I understand that nomos means the law, but see, the legal system becomes the law when you bind yourself through the law of God. In other words, take the benefit from Pharaoh, from Caesar, from FDR. You become bound. Because God is a God of contract. God is a God of cause and effect. You can say, well, I didn't know. Well, you know that they weren't giving you anything except what they took away from somebody else. That's, that's not rocket science. So, ultimately, there's this need of repentance. But Paul says, but for we... Through the Spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. They only have the hope that their neighbor will be there for them. And will consent to be there for them. To help them. And they have faith in that cause and effect. If you force your brother into bondage, you will go into bondage. If you turn your neighbor into a human resource, you will become a human resource. If you repent, think differently, and become the benefactor to your neighbor through daily consent, your neighbor through hope and righteousness by faith will become your benefactor. But I don't really see how that will work very well unless you sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and actually start caring about your neighbor, sacrificing your time, your energy, your resources, your possessions for others. Casting your bread upon the waters in hope that it comes back to you. With every donation, you are circumcised in Christ. In verse 6 he says, For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. Faith in laying down your life for your fellow man. In one form or another. By your choice. By your consent. It puts you in the other river. Miraculously, it puts you into the river of righteousness. Because that's what we're supposed to be seeking. Is seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Don't be like all those people that we see in the biblical text making excuses. I'll do that tomorrow. I'll do that 
later. Right now, I have to go do this. I have to go do that. No. You have to repent now. You have to seek the kingdom of God by doing what Christ actually said to do. And turning around from the ways of persuasion of the world and walking in the footpaths of Christ in the early church. So anyway, don't forget the Burning Bush Festival on August 21st and that weekend. Let us know if you're coming or you want to come. Until then, peace on your house and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.